listening to The Adjacent Self, brought to you by the Conscious Leadership Academy at the University of San Diego. We're your hosts, Kendra and Libby, and we're going to help you explore how to step into the best version of you. Thanks for being here. Hey, Libby. Hi, good morning. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing really well. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited. We have Dr. Zachary Green on today. He's going to be talking with us about racial equity, about consciousness and unconscious biases and moving forward um, in terms of allyship and accomplices and things like that. So Dr. Green is the lead faculty of RISE San Diego. He is the Director of Leadership Development at the Nonprofit Institute and a professor of practice at the Department of Leadership Studies, so we know him very well because we both took classes with him, and he's also a husband and a father. So welcome, Dr. Green. Well, thank you very much. I really look forward to this conversation. We are very excited to have you. Yeah. So every episode, we love to open up with a one breath, and we invite you to join us, so I'll go ahead and lead us through that. So... Uh, Let's take an inhale and an exhale. Oh, yeah. Now I'm ready to work. Okay. (laughs) So, Dr. Green, as someone who has done a lot of racial equity work, what to you would you say is the most important part of doing this work? I've been asking myself that question a lot. Recently, I just did a racial equity series called Fortify for six weeks, and it was a journey through different ways of understanding issues about systemic racism, the words that you use, ally and accomplice, and then a model that uh, Dr. Rod Smith and I have been developing, which looks at this adaptive racial hierarchy in these conversations. And what I find challenging about this whole racial equity space right now is that uh, despite our best efforts, I am afraid that most of what is being done is performative. Mm. And uh, it isn't that there isn't goodwill. It isn't that there isn't authentic interest. I think that all of that is definitely there. But ultimately, I believe that it's like um, a reactive uh, space around the anxiety that having the deeper conversations about race and history and that meaning has for all of us. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've heard a similar sentiment through other Black Americans I've spoken with, that this is very reactive in the terms of like they're now being EDI programs at organizations or at schools and stuff, but it's not necessarily going into the depth of what is behind what has led us to be here in this country. Right. And then, you know, and and it's coupled with uh, the current slash previous administration's view in terms of the executive order and what it does in terms of muffling Mm -hmm. these kinds of conversations. So, you know, you have that, but then in addition to that, the uh, the one hour DEI workshop or the three session board training uh, doesn't speak to a sort of four hundred year legacy mm-hmm. of representation right. uh, and the, the the belief that through that kind of action that you're going to have something of substance come of it 
And then the, the part that has really been most challenging to me is that the emotional cost that it has to people of color in particular, like people in specific, and then also then the complexity, and this is the real complexity, is that the issues around race are only one aspect of difference that needs the same kind of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the issues around gender, around class, around uh, sexual orientation, just to name a few, require the same levels of work. And uh, it's, it's, it's like uh, the availability for it is uh, a bit of a challenge. Let's put it there that for now. We're only five minutes in. Okay, I'm exhausted already. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it won't be like that for the whole thing. Um, so I think that just turning a little bit in this work, we were curious if you could talk to our listeners about the differences between what unconscious and conscious biases are. You want me to give you the textbook definitions or you want me to give you what I think? What do you think? We, we, I think we could we can the look up the textbook yeah, definition. Your but... opinion, what unconscious? <laughs> okay, so first of which, uh, there I don't think there's any distinction. Mm. <laughs> I think unconscious biases are just the muted ones that we try or have learned not to express. Uh, the conscious ones are the ones where, you know, we're active discrimination, all that. But I think the unconscious biases are actually much more pernicious in the sense that there's an editing function that we all do, you know, and it's a good thing that we have some level of filter. But then that stuff still shows up sideways in terms of how you side eye somebody or how the tone of voice that you use. I think all of that is still present. So, so the notion of unconscious bias uh, is also problematic because, uh, you know, the implicit, uh, uh, what, 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 the Harvard test, <laughs> that one. Uh, where it, yeah, where it really basically, you know, calls you out for like your eyes and, you know, and how quickly you respond to people who are different. All right. Uh, so the implicit assumptions test. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that tells you it's already there. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing is that uh, a lot of work is being done and, and a lot of training is being done around implicit unconscious bias. And it has been shown that it has the least impact in terms of changing behavior. Okay, so I can understand that, oh, my goodness, I have implicit bias, and therefore I have greater consciousness around it. But the thing is that that stuff is so hardwired in us that it takes a bit of a time, more than a minute, mm -hmm. to be able to shift that. Uh, so, so what I think the challenge is in all of this is to, to recognize that I believe such biases are inherent in the human condition uh, and that for us to strictly categorize them around social identities and the like is uh, a disservice to the, the way that they grew to be present in us, mm -hmm. the context in which they express themselves uh, and the meaning that it has for each of us in our particularity. So what I think is important is that we know it's there, that we work to uh, become more aware of them, 
but I think it's a part of something that's a much more complex picture than we want to begin to grapple with on any level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think cause our conscious and our unconscious bias, if you're looking outside of the social realm, yes. there's a reason why our DNA and our body, you know, whatever our growth and development along this human history, mm-hmm. there's a reason that we have some bias, right? Some mm-hmm. to protect us. If you hear a lion roar in the night, you know that that's something scary, right? So there's like these genetic markers that are telling us, here's something to fear. Here's something to go forward towards. Don't eat the red berries, right? <laughs> Um, but then it becomes a problem when we're living in a society where we have to work with other people and now it's showing up against people who really aren't a harm to us or who are different, but they're not, they're, they're not going to hurt you. They're not a problematic. So that's where you have to kind of use your conscious mind to say, okay, my instincts, you know, are telling me this, but my brain and my higher thinking is saying, wait a minute, let's check that. Yeah, we we very much agree that on that sort of limbic level that the fight-flight-freeze is something that we've all learned. And then, you know, there's a those of us who are analytically trained people know that even before we could form language, these biases were hardwired into us. You know, it's like you walk past that person who's different from you and your parent squeezes your hand and then you learn that, ooh, that's something to be concerned about. Mm. And so how do we help people grapple with something that is so, so ingrained at that level? I, I don't know. You know, and we and we act as if again that's one of these things that in an hour and a half then that's gone and it's not. It isn't. Yeah, it's like a lifetime of work, I think. Right. Yes. Yeah. With that, what would be the first steps to start working through those those biases or at least to bring awareness around those or if there's something that you do for your own unconscious or conscious biases? that you could share? Well, I, I, I know that I have a, a whole gamut <clears throat> of biases that I'm working on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work that I need to do is uh, when I'm aware of them is to look at them very directly. Mm. I mean, very directly in a, in a way that it's almost unflinching. I was noticing, <clears throat> it's hard to say this, but I was noticing that I was grading papers last week and there was a person of a particular identity where my response to the paper had all of this prejudice and discrimination in it Mm -hmm. uh, and that the the, the quality of what I was offering uh, to help this student was far less than I was offering other students. And so I was able to step back and see it, uh, but I had to deal with my own internalized shame around recognizing that this was even the case. Now, that was, the, that was just the first step. Mm-hmm. Then the second step is then I had to read the assignment again and to, to recognize that even in recognizing my own biases, the noise that was contributing to that, continued. Mm. 
So on one hand, I was conscious of it. Another hand, I was trying to rectify it. And what was overriding, as Libby was talking about, is that there's something that's hardwired in there uh, that's going to take more than the awareness for me to, to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But, but the first step is, you know, being aware of it and, and, and looking at it. And the second step is then taking action to mitigate it. Mm-hmm. And the third step is to recognize it's not going to be done in five minutes. Right. It isn't for any of us at mm-hmm. any time. Yeah. Um, that reminds me, a couple weeks ago, I was on Twitter mm-hmm. and I came across, across a video of a dark-skinned Black woman, very dark-skinned, and my immediate thought process or thought that came to mind rather is, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I'm not that dark. And within Af- the African-American community, colorism is such an issue. Um, that could be a whole nother episode. But my thought, as soon as I thought it, I caught it and I was like, why did I even think that? I wrote a paper on colorism within my master's. Like I know a lot about this, did the work for a whole semester on this and still it's ingrained in me. So it definitely is something that takes a while to unwire your brain through. Thank, thank you, Kendra. You were much more courageous about giving a very specific example, but yes, that kind of, I, I, the language I used around it is the pigmentocracy within the black community, mm. how that plays out. And, and then the, and, and the fact that we have learned that and that we play that out with each other over and over again, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a part of it. And then, you know, when we extend it to the fuller spectrum of humanity, then we see it in all these different shades. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then as I was thinking about it and going through like where my, how my brain even got there in that moment, it dialed back to like, as you mentioned, like your mother squeezing your hand, it was me growing up with lighter skinned cousins who were fully black, but Mm -hmm. treated differently than I was because my skin was darker Mm -hmm. and it was noticeable for me at like eight, nine years old. And so like that ingrained and here I am 31 and I still like am bearing the weight of that, those pieces of things that were done to me or, or instilled at me rather. Yeah. We, we know that all too well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of lends to like the question about microaggressions. Um, Would you be able to explain kind of what a microaggression is and then maybe give us an example or two of when you've experienced a microaggression towards you? The, the way that microaggression is classically understood, and this is the work by Daryl Ling Su out of Columbia University. He was the originator of the term, and it's, it's since been broadened. But he specifically said it was the small, you know, slights that uh, people of color receive on a daily basis. And then he also talks about the cumulative impact that those have. Now, microaggression has then since been expanded to any group that experiences some level of oppression and these small slights. But the one I really like is this video that was done. Have you seen the video, the mosquito video? No. Oh, oh, there's this. Oh, this is great video. It says that microaggressions are like mosquito bites. And that some people tend to be bitten more than others. And then after you get bitten a, a bunch of times and you explode and then people say, oh, what's wrong with him? Oh, my God. Okay. Because what happens is that 
it's like the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. It isn't the specific aggression of that particular moment. It is the, the accumulation and then what it does in the body and then it raises up. And then you have this moment of explosion and people do not understand the disproportionate reaction to that joke and this, that little prod or that use of language and things of that sort because... It's, it's just all of the time. It's, so my favorite one is actually at the University of San Diego. I am wearing my tie. I have on my suit. I go and I stand in front of the class. And one of the students says, when will the professor be here? <laughs> Any other person up there? <laughs> standing up there of a different hue, uh, meaning like, like a white person, that there wouldn't have been any question, or at least there would have been a pause before, you know. So uh, that is by far absolutely my favorite one. And of course, you know, anytime that I'm in a store and I'm dressed down, uh, and especially when I'm wearing khakis, <laughs> uh, can you tell me where the uh, the, the, the soup is? Or and I don't know. I don't work here. And then there's a, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. It isn't that that's not understandable. And it isn't that in and of itself it's problematic. It's, it's like, you know, it's happened to me hundreds of times in life. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there have been times where I said, I am in the store shopping the same way you are. And I don't know why you think looking over at me uh, that I work here. You know, and I said, oh, mm-hmm. I've only done that once. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it does get to the point. So, so microaggression is really difficult because some people don't even believe it exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and really people think it's just over sensitivity. And on some level, that's true. It is a kind of a sensitivity, but it's a sensitivity born out of experience mm-hmm. uh, where you begin to sort of question your reality. It's sort of like gaslighting on a, on a macro scale. It's sort of like, you know, why is it that I walk into this situation and I have to deal with that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. The, 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 the more subtle version is what is called the sort of like the, the blink of the eye. So when uh, people don't know I'm showing up and all they know is that Dr. Green is going to show up and Dr. Green shows up and there's the, oh, uh, and, 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 and the, <laughs> but I like that one. I will admit, yeah. I read your, I read, um, a paper you had written. I, I believe it was on holistic coaching. Maybe you co-wrote it. Right. And this was well before I even like had met you. You were on sabbatical. Yeah. I had no idea who you were. And I pictured like, this white guy with long hair, like yeah. hippie kind of, you know, like totally not you. And then right. when I met you, I was like, oh, this is Dr. Green. Like totally, my mental image was completely different than my yeah. actual reality. Yeah, I've had that happen more than once that when people read my work and then I'm the guest lecturer, but there's no photograph. And then I show up uh, and I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Green. And then I said, I thought you were like this Jewish professor with the, like the beard. I had this whole picture and then you walk in and I don't know what to do with that. 
you know, but it was a class where we would talk about, like, I don't know what to do with that. And, yeah. yeah. I can receive it as aggression, but what I appreciate is that both of you are, like, being, like, live and real around these kinds of things. So, yes, it it, it is uh, gotten to the point where it is so much expected mm-hmm. that I can, you know, pretty much receive it with equanimity. Yeah. But it wasn't always the case. I think that, you know, um, when you touch on people who don't believe that it's a real thing, what I always implore people to do is to try to find examples in your own life where maybe you have shown up and and somebody has perceived you a different way than than you thought that they would, or they didn't take you as seriously as you, as you should have been taken. Um, and then just apply that little bit of empathy. So I know for me, I, I worked, um, flipping houses for a number of years and I was like, 23. And so I would show up this young blonde girl to these, Mm -hmm. you know, and most of the time it was older people and I'd show up to their house and they'd be like, so do you need to call your boss to ask him about, and it was always him, right? (laughs) Ask him about how much you can offer me. And I'm like, I'm the boss. I own the business. Like I'm the one buying the house. It'll be my name on title Mm -hmm. and having to explain over and over and over again that like, yes, I am going to be buying your house. And you know, that's me. Uh, But, you know, and so then I can kind of take that and I can say, okay, that was a very small, like tiny period of my life and then apply my empathy and say, like, what if that was happening to me every single day, all day long? Of course, then I would have the mosquito bite reaction where I would just explode, yell at somebody, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's why Langston Hughes wrote the poem, which uh, is given the title Harlem. Mm-hmm. Where he talks about all of these, oh, you know, happens, all the ways that this happens in terms of what happens to a dream deferred. You know, does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? It's like, do you, you like shrink in the face of this? Or does it like fester like a sore and then run? Is it like this open wound? You know, you know, and then does it stink like rotten meat? You know, the idea of this is being like, this becomes this sort of like fetid thing, you know, that, ugh. Uh, does it sag like a heavy load, you know, and then this idea that's just this weight that you carry, but then this microaggression is the last line, or does it explode? You know, I mean, because it, it really does feel like that. Yeah. I would have never thought of that poem in that, towards microaggressions in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but, and I've heard it, you know, probably since the fourth grade when they put it in education, but thank you for that, yeah. So what do you do in the moment when you experience something like this? How is your, what's your reaction? Uh, The good thing is that I have a pretty great meditation practice, (laughs) Uh, you know, and I I do come uh, by the sort of hippie part of me that you picked up Libby. Thank you. Yeah. Who was the coaching, you know? Uh, So, uh, and and there is a part of me that is literally able to breathe into it, mm-hmm. you know, literally breathe into the moment and find my center uh, because the, it provides an opportunity for education. It provides an opportunity for uh, an experience that really causes cognitive dissonance and in the other and, and, and if I can sort of sort of sit with that long enough and then receive it in the language of like uh, one of our courses that it's a projection, it isn't about me. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am the vehicle that is used for this. And I can let it be where it is and I can release it. You know, and I, and I am able to practice that on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. It is only when I am emotionally depleted because I've been doing too many things at the same time or the number of assaults are, uh, are what, uh, outside of my threshold, uh, then, then I'm not as able to do it. And then <clears throat> my practice is to not talk to anybody or see anyone or do anything for about a week. Mm-hmm. I go deep solitude. And uh, what I used to do before COVID is that every summer I would go to this cabin in Oregon Mm-hmm. And not literally not talk to anybody and meditate every day, write. Uh, and all of those kinds of things were just enough to get the full reserve back so that I could deal with it on the day-to-day basis. And then I had occasion for the last five years, again, five years again until COVID, is that I would go to, to uh, India and I worked with people who were really like poor. I mean, like poverty poor, like... Uh, at the point where their goal of one of the organizations that I worked with was for a family of five to have its second meal of the day. Mm-hmm. And the second meal of the day was like beans and rice. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of gives you perspective. And then at the end of each of those days, then I would just sort of like quiet myself and, and center. And because I was in someplace else, and then I was also doing the same kind of practices that I would do when I would go to this cabin. Those practices really deepened me at a way that I can't even adequately describe uh, because it would provide insight uh, because it, w- would, it was such a different context uh, mm-hmm. that I could hold this kind of stuff that we deal with in the U.S. context a lot easier. Yeah. As a a younger Black American, hearing that and, like, thinking of the microaggressions that I've faced, like, for instance, like, you speak so articulately. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, hearing you, like, the practice you do to do the work through that, I, I feel like my instinct right now is to be petty back. And I wish it wasn't, or, you know, like retaliation, or like you said, like to shrink into your own solitude. Um, So like now thinking about like how I can go forward and instead of letting this infect me so much, because it literally takes over my body um, to put it through like a meditation practice or to give back in some kind of way would probably, because it's really not about what those people have said most of the time I'm not going to see them again or for a while. So it's, it's the effect it has on me that I think like it, it's built up so much that mm-hmm. I, I go into spaces now ready for those kind of things to be said. Even when I entered USD, like being one of the only black students ready for people to think less of me than I actually was because of aggressions and microaggressions against me. There you go. And but, but let's 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 take the example that you just gave, Kendra. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're so articulate. Now, what has happened among the black intelligentsia is that we have taken that to be a microaggression. And so it is almost code that if someone says to us, You're so articulate, 
is a microaggression because we understand that it means that you're not supposed to be or it's not expected. All right, good. Now, nine times out of 10, the person that says that really thinks it is a compliment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, do we attend to how we're hardwired as allegiance to our identity group to accept it as a microaggression or do we do the bridge work of Mm -hmm. saying thank you and then helping the person that we're speaking to understand, but you know that 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 could also be perceived as diminishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying, and I I definitely could do it in the latter. Of yeah, I know, but it's a lot. Yeah, I know it's a lot of work. I, yeah. I didn't say you, you, one would want to do it. I'm just saying what we could do it. I could do it. And right. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So you could do it. And so that this is part of the, the polarity of, of cancel culture versus fragility that mm-hmm. is problematic. So I want to cancel you because you're ignorant because you're calling me articulate, right? Okay. And then what has been served by that? Probably nothing. So I get to feel wonderful in the sense of I've canceled you, mm-hmm. uh, but then I have also lost the opportunity for a potential ally mm. in this situation mm-hmm. for us to do a little bit of work. And mm-hmm. so if I can do a little work with someone whose intention was to give me a compliment and then for us to do some work around, well, that wasn't, mm-hmm. and, and then, and, and, and then when they go fragile, to say, no, 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 let's stay present to one another. Right. You see? And so, so if, we, if we do the, the, the cancel fragility thing, we're, we're just contributing to the polarization. That's the part that, I, that drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to take this opportunity to draw the parallel between what was just said to what we've talked about before mm-hmm. about really leaning across the aisle really connecting with people, you know, having those conversations, this, what Dr. Green just said, that's how you do it. Um, It's taking that extra step. And Mm -hmm. I think that people who are listening to our podcast, a lot of times we talk about do this, do this, do this, but this is like the actual how piece. The actual now, and then the argument is going to be, but then the onus is on the person of color, is on the onus is on the gay person. The person is onus on the, on the, on the woman to do that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Not yes as it should be, but yes, that is a part of the challenge right now mm-hmm. is that everyone, and I do mean everyone, feels as if the other party should be more present to their experience mm-hmm. so that they are, have the empathy and compassion to do this work. Mm-hmm. I think all of us have to find the empathy and compassion within ourselves. Yeah. First for ourselves, first for ourselves, mm-hmm. so that we recognize a responsibility to each other to do this work. Yeah. You, we, we can't abandon the work because it is hard. We have to be, and I do mean have to be, we have to be discerning. That part is yes discerning whether it is worth the investment in this other human being to do the work. I would agree with that part that I would agree with. Uh, But, but for us to um, delimit opportunities uh, by chosen narratives that are restrictive 
that I, I cannot abide by that anymore. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm arriving in all of this. Wow. I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, so moving forward, we want to talk a little bit about anti-racism and even in the work that we're talking about right now for a lot of people, um, this is new work. This is something new presented and they're working through uncomfortable situations or interactions. What advice might you have for those starting this work to continue pushing forward and to not be discouraged when they mess up throughout it? Beautiful. Thank you for that question. You know, I I also don't want to answer it, but let me go on and do it anyway. The the difficulty that we're having in the discourse as it's being presented right now is that we're still talking in echo chambers and bubbles. You know, we're really talking to each other and not talking across these differences. So that's the first part. Mm-hmm. The second part is that the, the the rigidity between not racist and anti-racist is big time problem right now. Yeah. Because it is either you're not a racist or you're anti-racist, as if there isn't a grand middle. When I did this Fortify Racial Equity series, and uh, Dr. Roxanne Kamani did this particular module, but it's one that I really advocate, is that The person that says, I'm not a racist, is so afraid that they're going to be labeled one and they want to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body and the denial of all of the things that we've been talking about, implicit bias, systemic racism, all that stuff, don't want to say that they're associated with any of that. And that's problematic. Okay? Agreed is problematic. Uh, But if we hold that person differently and say, yeah, I don't like to think of myself as being a racist either, uh, but then there's a journey. So the the notion of the journey of this is that if we start off in this sort of like not racist place, then how do you begin the journey to recognize that there's something there? Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do, and I'm afraid if I say anything, I'm going to do it wrong. Then the next part is in the education, the self-education. And if you have somebody that's willing to put up with you, them educating you. And then from that space to sort of be able to sit with that. And then uh, the way I talk about it is the newly woke or like uh, people that uh, are getting uh, converted to a new religion. Uh, And they're going to make mistakes and they want everybody to understand this and how big of an issue it is and don't realize it's like, problematic Mm. so then the journey then extends after that into being able to find one's actual voice in this and to find family friends who are able to hold the conversation that doesn't mean agree it means to hold the conversation without you being in this point of self-righteousness and righteousness indignation that doesn't help then then we begin to get into the sort of ally accomplice space mm-hmm. uh in in that respect then you begin to step off the platform you know and it's all about me to recognize this about the people with whom you're working who are closest to the experience uh, and then from there, when there's no one of that ilk, of that particular identity there, then it's your job to be an advocate, to be a voice yeah. in that situation. 
And then from there, from that advocacy, then do you go to the streets? Do you begin to affect policy? Do you begin to work in the place where you work, where you see this stuff, and then you become that voice? But that's a journey. Yeah. yeah. Now, now that, but I want to talk about one other part. So the ally language, you know, there is a huge debate over whether I can call myself an ally. Okay, I don't care. Um, but the point is that a person who is an ally recognizes that these issues do exist. Mm -hmm. And I think it is better that a person be deemed an ally than one self-identifies an ally. Okay, but that's neither here nor there. Then the idea of accomplice is how the language is used in the movement, which I agree with in terms of the movement, but a person listening to the language of, of accomplice who's outside of these movements, the language doesn't work. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've been talking about the, the language of accompaniment. Mm. The idea that just like, you know, uh, when Leontine Price is about to do a solo, she has someone who's accompanying her, who's a virtuoso in his or her own respect. And they are doing beautiful music, but Leontine Price is up there doing the solo. You see what I'm saying? And so, so how do we then become a to this place? And then how do we then stand alongside and be advocates? And then this is all the journey that gets us to the point where anti-racism is an ideal, recognizing, as we've already talked about, through implicit bias, through microaggression and all that stuff, nobody actually gets fully anti-racist. It's just a matter of getting closer and closer to that, that space. And it is not static. It's ongoing. It's a short version. I have an example that I think is, is funny and also interesting. So my grandma and I were talking about this episode. So my grandma's 87 and she um, has, I think it's three or four new babies in her life. So my cousin had a baby. There's a couple other babies in the um, neighborhood that she knows. There's just, you know, friends and family who have had babies. And she went to the store and she bought Pat the Bunny. Which I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It was written in like 1920s. Um, she bought Pat the Bunny for all the babies. Well, the baby who lives across the street from her is a black baby. And so she bought the book and now she's scared to give the book to the mother because she says, this book is so white. You know, it's a white family. It was written in 1920s. It's a white bunny. She's like, can I give the, the black baby the white book? Is that going to be me, you know, doing something and, and not thinking through the intention and the action and, and the feeling that's going to come up mm -hmm. from it? Um, and so we started to have this conversation and I said, well, um, just, I think for her, especially she grew up in a very white town. Um, she said that there was one black person in her town for years and years and years. And so she hasn't had really a lot of experience and she's not on social media, right? She's in her eighties. She has no idea about the language and the work that's going on. Mm -hmm. And so I mentioned to her a little bit about this kind of moving from ally to accomplice and and I was trying to explain this to her and she goes, but I just want to be their friend. Like, how do I just you know, be friends with somebody? And so I, I wanted to posit this story to you and just kind of see um, if somebody was to come to you and kind of ask you what to do in this situation, what would your response be? 
when you know this is uh, 19 years ago now but that was one of the books that i got <laughs> for our baby so <laughs> it's, it's uh but it's really important and i and i love the beauty of what you're offering is because your grandmother is like so much of the country mm-hmm. is that so much of the country and the, the the data supports this is that white folks and black folks don't have friends of the other race. And uh, a lot of people, and we know that there are 71 million of them, do not often live in neighborhoods where they even experience another black person. And as a consequence, the only experience they have is what is in the media, in uh, entertainment, and now, unfortunately, social media, mm-hmm. uh, because of the the really the, the the sort of primal elements that are expressed through it. The beautiful thing that your grandmother said is that I just want to be their friend, and if that's the intention, the family is not going to throw the book in her face. Right. They will say thank you for the book, and they will never read that book to that child. <laughs> <laughs> but the intention around it if received then allows for the potential of friendship Mm -hmm. and so all of us who are overthinking everything so that we don't get labeled in this way right now are all contributing to the fact that nothing's going to change but i would have her goes go get good night moon instead if she wants to get an old 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 timey book <laughs> I will do tell her <laughs> that's a great book i had that one growing yeah, up right. too. all right or dinosaur roar dinosaur squeak i hear that <laughs> oh yeah i do remember that one <laughs> all right well um moving forward we have the holidays coming up thanksgiving's in a couple weeks and then christmas oh, yes. about a month from now uh and i've noticed around i'm on tiktok uh, and I've noticed a lot of people like, I want to be extreme at my Thanksgiving and call out my racist uncle, or I'm not going because of my family is a different political system than I do. So there's some dread or excitement to cause chaos. And there's these conflicting conver- conversations that I think people are worried or anticipating to happen around politics. And we know that dialogue is very important. We know civil discourse and the ability to disagree and yet connect still is also really important. Um, How can people do this? Okay, so first thing, they shouldn't be going home if they didn't get COVID tested. Okay. (laughs) That's the first thing because the super spreader events that we're about to have in the next three weeks, that that's what I'm much more concerned about, to be Mm. quite honest. Uh All right. So that's first. Yeah. The second part of it is that when we do call out and counsel, for whom are we doing that? Mm. If they if a person is calling out your racist uncle for my benefit, don't do that for my benefit. Mm-hmm. That's not that that does not benefit me. That pushes your racist uncle into a level of entrenchment uh, that then shows up in the ballot box at the next election. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the entrenchment that leads to social media assaults on Kamala Harris uh, 
right. uh, that are just vile and violent right now mm -hmm. uh, around what it represents to have a woman who represents these, these communities of color in that role. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help anything. Right. See, the, the, the discipline around the particular moment that we're in, and I am going to put this much more on progressives. I'm sorry, I am. Is that it is correct that for the last four years, there has been permission for the darker elements of our nature, and I use dark advisedly, Okay, but what I'm talking about is the shadow, the parts of ourselves that we don't want. We're given free reign and permission. Okay, great. All right. 75 million people decided that that's over. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that was just enough people in just the right places that we're likely going to have a shift, at least in the voice of this, for some time. Okay, so that's the first one. Mm -hmm. The discipline that is required then, and this is discipline, is to inquire into how that story came to be. My father was a Reagan Republican. Uh, and we would get into it, but I wanted to understand, how did you ever even get to that thought? You know? And then he would explain to me from an economic perspective, being an entrepreneur, that it was better for him to have this particular Republican in the White House than it was for him to have the alternative. Now he switched back finally. <laughs> but, but the thing is that I was able to understand, I didn't agree with him, but I heard his thinking all the way through. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is my view. If you are not willing to listen to someone all the way through and equally explain your thinking all the way through and it isn't sound, bite, uh, fixed narrative thinking, then have the conversation. Mm -hmm. But if you are not able to do that and it's about calling out so you're gratified for your ego, then it is of service to no one. Right. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. see if you called out your uncle in Kentucky at Thanksgiving. That's You'll not see it getting when back it shows to me. Up on the ballot next. Well, yeah, I'll <laughs> see it then, right? But I'm not. It in two years. Yeah, but it's not going to do anything for me, like immediately or whatever. I think the intention that that person who is doing the calling out is participating in, like, it's more. It, it's more for your own ego mm -hmm. to know that you were an ally in that stance. You know, and, and this is the early wokeness that is problematic. You know, I, I told you when we started this, I'm more conservative around this view than a lot. Mm -hmm. But I think the problem with early wokeness is the self-righteousness and the ego that goes with it. And I really do believe that it does more harm than good because of what it does to put people into a fixed position, puts them against the wall, and then they get a shame response. And a shame response then really is then hard for people to work through. Mm -hmm. You know, psychologically, shame is one of the hardest things to work through. 
Right. And, and uh, you know, you want to shame me because of something that I learned. You want to shame me because when I was younger, you know, I had an experience that I've never talked about uh, and that I associated with a person that looks like that. And then you want to blame me for that. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Okay, but George Floyd was murdered. Breonna Taylor, babe, had did a, a, a ruling because of the wall and not because of her. And you stood there and you voted for Trump. It doesn't get us there. Mm. It doesn't. Yeah. This really leads me to thinking about the work that you've done in the group relations field. Yes. Um, you know, I know that this is what I think is beautiful about group relations. And first I'm going to have you define it because I think that us doing that work, we kind of are, are more understanding of what it is. But what I had found was that it's this academic theory that I learned about in school, but then it applies to real world situations. And I think it's one of the only academic theories that I've learned about that has like this really immediate application. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you just explain first for our listeners, what it means Um, what group relations is, and then how that shows up in practice? Okay, so group relations is a way of understanding the unconscious processes that happen in the human condition. Mm. That's the short version of it. The USD, University of San Diego version of it, is to do it from an adaptive leadership lens, which really means the ability to go look at things from up at the balcony and then also look at things on the dance floor at the same time. But the part that is really important in terms of this work is that we have stories that we tell ourselves all the time. And these stories, we don't allow examination. And group relations says, let's examine the story you're telling yourself. And let's examine that story along with the other stories that people are telling themselves. And let's look at the ways that this tells us something about the collective narrative that we're creating. Let's, let, let, let's look at that. That's the first part. The other part is that each of us then comes to these things with uh, uh, the, the fancy word is valence. But valence simply means we have a propensity, a natural propensity to show up in a situation. And we do this all the time and don't even recognize it. The other part is that groups don't want to deal with themselves. And so they project uh, and they displace and they do all kinds of things to avoid the work. And what I mean by work in this situation is a work around race, gender, identity. And, and, and group relations strips away all the other stuff and it's just you dealing with you. And the task is to understand what it is that we are doing as we are doing it. So and so we in group relations try to help people just sit with it long enough. And then when you do, you can, it is, it's like that saying, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. That is the beauty of it is you can't unsee it. And then once you can't unsee it, then you have a responsibility now that you have the awareness to do something about it. So my follow-up questions, I think, is if we're looking at as our at our country as a group, right? So kind of gonna apply the group relations to the country. Yes. How do you think that this shows up in the nation? Oh, the, the, we're in a mutual projection process right now. 
we we are so invested in our respective narratives and our respective bubbles that we have created and you know biden said it in what was supposed to be his victory speech that we see our opponents as our enemies Mm -hmm. and this is what is going on and so literally next door i have a person that does uh breitbart level uh podcasts but we say hello to each other and he hears me doing what i'm doing right now uh when the windows are open and so you know it's it's like you know we try to talk to each other Mm -hmm. uh so the country is in a position where it has an actual choice uh do we descend into the second civil war which we are on the verge of doing if we continue on the path that we're on. Right. Because we literally are projecting so much hatred into one another, not difference, hatred into one another, that the only way to discharge this will be to have an actual battle over who is right. So that's the main problem. The other problem that we're having is that there are so few people that are allowed to be in the bridge space. So this is where the the cancel and fragility stuff of the racial equity space goes to the larger national discourse. The kind of things that I'm saying right now, there are some black people who feel that I am absolutely betraying the cause. There are some progressives who feel that how dare I talk about our us being in this bubble when it is them who are in their Fox Breitbart bubble. You know, yes, they are. So then who are the people who can talk to each other? Where are they? Where are they? And so... There has to become a critical mass of people who say enough that can begin to hold differences with one another in a way where there is deep disagreement and we can be disagreeable, but we do not hate each other. Can we hold the differences in such a way that it's kind of interesting, that we have curiosity, uh, that we have wonder about how a person even got there. And then if we can begin to have something that resembles wonder about how people got there, then we get to that beautiful essence of our common humanity, you know, that we all live, we all breathe, we experience this, this, this thing called birth, and that we're all going to experience this thing called death. And then in this place in between, we might get a chance to love somebody. Mm-hmm. And then what do we do if we can expand the circle of people that we love one by one? The nation has an opportunity to do that right now, mm-hmm. if it so chooses. Mm-hmm. But if our investment is our righteous indignation, because someone used the wrong term or our righteous indignation because they're coming after our guns. There's no hope. But I want to believe there is hope. I love that. Me too. 
I don't even have anything to respond to that because I think you put that so well. I know. Just wrapped it up with a beautiful bow. And yeah, I guess, you know, um, on a practical application for that, you know, that kind of goes back to your question, Kendra, about meeting people over the holidays and, you know, having that conversation. I think a lot of times we think about how do we make an impact on a national scale and maybe individually we probably can't. But you can, through the ripple effect of meeting people who are already in your social circle, reaching out to people who aren't in your social circle, and like you said, expanding Mm -hmm. the people who you love. Absolutely. One person. Yeah. Well, um, one of the questions we love to end up with is to talk about our consciousness. So we would love to know about how you're practicing consciousness right now. Uh, 200 days ago, well, it's actually 196, but I'm looking forward to the 200th day. <clears throat> I began walking 10,000 steps a day. Wow. Uh, and so I used to do my meditation practice, so, you know, but what I find is that the embodiment of it, as opposed to a sitting practice, a walking practice, has done this wonderful thing in terms of feeling like I'm on a journey all the time. Mm. And then I can take a question with me. I can listen to music I haven't heard heard for like decades. And then what that does is it propels me to different kinds of places and spaces. And what I am finding is that that hour, it takes me usually now because I stroll as opposed to walk. I don't power walk, I stroll. Um, what it does is it takes me to a different space of discernment about what's really important and valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, if my son asks me, you know, if I want to shoot baskets with him, that means rebound for him, by the way. Um, then I know that that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. You know, when my son wants to talk to me about the newest Lego set that's coming out, that's the most important thing that used to be, I would say, yeah, yeah, whatever. I got to go. But those moments that are precious have now become amplified. Mm. And so the practice of walking has caused me to ironically slow down. Wow. And then in the slowing down, then I can see more clearly mm. what is truly valuable. So that's the main practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other practice that I do uh, is still to meditate, but I don't do it in the same kind of way. I use meditation specifically to do two elements at the same time. One is to get to some deeper essence of myself, to sort of listen to whatever's there. And I have a specific place that I go to do that. And then the other part of it is that when I'm really in a good meditation, then I can do what is called tonglen, which is a practice of broadening the circles of uh, compassion out. Uh, And that helps me sort of hold more of humanity in in my space. Mm. And then the last practice is saying no. Mm -hmm. Because I used to be one that said yes to everything. Mm. Now, uh, I've said no more in the last three weeks than I probably have in the last year uh, to things. Wow. And and to to sit with, if I do that, then I'm not going to have the time to walk in the morning with my son or to to shoot baskets with my other son 
or to, you know, go on the beach and, you know, and for Renee and I have to have that time together. I'm not, we're not going to have that. Mm. So those are the, my main practices. That's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. You know, I read something recently that saying no is actually saying yes. So you might mm-hmm. be saying no to something else, but you're saying yes to something that's more important to you or to yeah. yourself. Yep. Or, Absolutely. Yeah. Reframing that. It is a reframe that has taken me literally decades to arrive at what I've been practicing only for the last period. Do you think that because of COVID, it's helped you to lean in more to say no? It has. Our last question that we ask everybody, my probably one of my favorite questions, honestly, what are you currently reading? (laughs) I'm reading P.D. Ospinsky's The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, but but it is uh, it is really kind of this esoteric book. But I read it for the first time when I was like twenty five, and I, I thought I understood it then. But I, I do get better understanding. the The essence of the book is that we're all asleep, all mm-hmm. of us, uh, and uh, our sleep isn't the sense of like you know that sleep, but our sleep is in the sense of we don't have an original thought. Mm. We uh, go around saying things that we believe is ours. Mm -hmm. uh, And we don't do the work of being present in a real way. Wow. And uh, it also says that there's no such thing as I, but I is this multiplicity and that we, uh, much as... uh, I can't remember who said it, but you know, that we contradict ourselves. Of course we contradict ourselves, you know, cause I am multitudes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so, but the book really speaks to that. We are multitudes and that these multitudes don't always have conversations with each other, but we walk around because we have this myth of self of this embodied presence that we are this one, but we are actually many, all of us. And so all of this, uh, conversation about race and about nationality around our nation state and things of like that. So it really requires us to understand that we are many. Mm-hmm. And then therefore there are all these different ways that we could connect into our common humanity. <laughs> we have been so lucky to yes. have you today. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. I know this isn't an easy topic, and but the deep dive, I think, is going to be so beneficial to the people who listen to this. So we really yeah. thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm glad this is one space where I did want to say yes. It felt important. And for the two of you in particular to take this on, to invite us to conscious leadership, you know, is key. So thank you. New episodes drop every Thursday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To join the conversation and be part of the community, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at USDCLA or email us at theadjacentself at sandiego.edu. We can't wait to hear from you.